When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. Have you ever wondered about what goes into a Broadway production? I mean, really thought about it. For one thing, it can cost upwards of $20 million just to put a show together, which includes scenery, costumes, lighting, and rehearsals, just to name a few of the expenses. And then there's the time commitment. It often takes several years to write a Broadway musical from conception to a theater-ready score and then do everything from creating the scenery to hiring the cast. Now, imagine spending all of this time and effort to actually get it to happen and then, nine months later, making the heartbreaking decision to shut it all down due to COVID. Our guest today, Carmen Pavlovich, debuted Moulin Rouge on Broadway with her theater company Global Creatures in June of 2019 after 10 years of striving to create a spot for themselves on the world stage. But her team wouldn't give up, and 18 months later, in September of 2021, they reopened. They are the first Australian theater company ever to originate a show on Broadway, and Moulin Rouge, the musical, earned them 10 Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Carmen. Thank you for being here today and welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm so thrilled to talk with you. I'm really a genuine fan, Karen. It's so fun watching your um, various podcasts and talks over the time. I'm really, really thrilled to be chatting. Well, thank you. And thank you for joining me uh, from Australia. I don't know if it's yesterday or today or tomorrow, actually. I always get a little bit confused. I think it's tomorrow. It's tomorrow, so it's it's sort of the middle of my day, and we well, it, it sort of works pretty well actually. I always say it's not the most convenient place to run an international company from, but <laughs> we've got a pretty good rhythm going with the U.S. time zone. Well, I imagine that's probably true, but okay. So let me start at the beginning. Did you put on shows in your backyard when you were a kid? No, I really had nothing to do with theatre at all. I'm one of six children. I had a very working class, kind of suburban upbringing in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia. People often think it's Sydney, but it's Canberra. And I just, I would say I came from a very creative family, but not a family that really went to theatre. I mean, my parents were busy raising six kids, kind of born 12, 18 months apart. So, you know, they were really at the business end. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Um, For many years. And I guess... I found my way into theatre because I certainly grew up in an environment where there was lots of creativity. And my dad, before he escaped from Croatia and came to Australia, was a glassblower, 
My mum is a homemaker, but she's very creative in her own way. They cooked. They'd never set the table without cutting some flowers from the garden and putting them on the table. There was endless renovation. And my siblings have all grown up and ended up in very creative industries as well. So it was just that kind of environment that I grew up in. I didn't go to theatre particularly. And certainly for many years in the industry, I really felt like an imposter. I felt like an imposter when I'd be sitting at the dinner party and especially on Broadway when people go around and say, what was your favourite musical or what was the musical you saw that kind of changed everything and made you know you wanted to be in the industry? And I would always think I don't have that story. And it took me a while of kind of, I guess, looking back and thinking, wow, how did I arrive here? Because I often get asked, oh, how did you start in theatre? And I think I realise now I really like storytelling. I thought I'd be a journalist actually. And I like storytelling and, and I realised after a while it's probably more the stories of my dad leaving Croatia, wanting a better life, being a rebel, being branded an enemy of the people for graffitiing the back of toilet doors and school. And I think those are the sort of stories that made me think there was another world out there and that really expressing yourself and kind of being ambitious and being fearless they're the sort of things that really sit behind the company I've set up and the kind of ambition we had around the world. So I guess I started studying. I, I had an arts degree. I actually had a Russian major with literature, language and history. But I I didn't think about being in theatre. I got a part-time job as a student. I knew I always wanted to be in creative industries and I just kind of found myself going from box office to running a little cabaret venue to administrating a little not-for-profit and just really growing from there. Yeah. So you're running this little cabaret venue and did you feel like, wow, this fits me, this feels right? Yeah. I mean, I started out more in kind of, I guess, comedy and cabaret and not-for-profit theatre and I'm someone who's desperately always wanted to have children. I mean, my mother used to say to me, I'm so scared you're going to go off and have a baby. Even when you were kind of 12, you were talking about it. And I tell my daughter, I remember getting in trouble at school because, you know, in year 10, they went around asking us what we all wanted to do when we left school and what did you want to do more than anything? And I fully intended to have a career and study, but the answer to the question for me was, I want to be a mother. And I remember these teachers sort of scoffing at me. But there came a point where I was really aware of wanting autonomy. And I've heard you talk about this as well. I just, I wanted flexibility. I had a very radical godmother who, you know, I grew up in quite a Catholic family and I'm not practicing, but my mother had the good sense to pair me with a godmother who was very radical. She had me burning my bras on a beach when I was 13. That She'd lecture me a lot about the disaster that the nuclear family had been for women. And Wow, that's really ahead of her time. Yeah, it really impressed on me this kind of idea of, of being able to make choices and really wanting to be able to support myself if I needed to with children because I knew for me that was not negotiable. I wanted to be a mother. And it was the thing that mattered more than anything. So at that point, I really decided to kind of broaden out my skill set with doing an MBA, which was a little unusual at the time for people working in creative industries. I really went through my master's with mostly men and just plenty of engineers and people who wanted to be management consultants. And I thought, oh, of course, I'm going to be a management consultant because that sounded really easy. But when I left my master's, I really, I guess, just then had the opportunity to kind of build further into my career on the path I was on. And I went to, from there to work for Andrew Lloyd Webber and that, that's what took me into the world of musicals. 
that seems like a really important person to know if one wants to be in theatre. How did you get to him? Well, he had a company in Australia and they were hiring. I remember walking through the doors actually and at the time my brother who works in music as a very young man was bringing Nirvana to Australia just before they became super big, right? So he'd booked them just before they knocked Michael Jackson off the charts. And I remember walking into sort of Andrew Lloyd Webber's foyer with Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat posters and thinking, oh my God, I'm just never going to live this down with my brother if I take this job. But I did and it was a terrific experience and I met one of many mentors to come for me, Tim McFarland, and he really taught me a lot about musicals. I have to say I was never naturally drawn to musicals. I, to be honest, found them pretty uncool, but I really discovered I loved producing them. I really loved the scale and the complexity and the difficulty and it just really spoke to me. So it was a really important step for me and actually I'm sure we'll talk about the Tonys later but it was quite incredible to have Andrew Lloyd Webber present the Tony Award for Best Musical on the night we were so lucky to win it. So it was a nice full circle moment for me, for sure. Yeah, I can't even imagine what that's like, but we will get to that because that's an incredible part. Okay, so how did you then decide to start Global Creatures, which is your theatre production company? Yeah. So I had moved to London and I was working in London. I just had really the best job in the world. It felt like I, I had a fantastic job as head of production for stage entertainment. I was based in London and they were Europe's or are Europe's largest producer. So I was head of the international production department. I set the company up in Russia. I set the company up in Italy, in France. And that role really was a combination of business development, so acquiring theatres, renovation, then acquiring rights to put shows on and then setting up a team locally and training them how to produce a show. So it was an incredibly fulfilling role. I had a very close relationship with the board who I reported to, managing a young baby, which I wasn't sure how that would go, but I was managing my travel and had a very flexible baby who was happy to travel with me. And my partner at the time was asked to design a show called Walking with Dinosaurs. But Pete had been asked to be the set designer for this show. And I said to him, I think it sounds complicated. And I actually worried it wasn't such a good idea. And he said to me, but I just, you don't understand. I love dinosaurs more than anything. And I'm doing this. And I'm okay. So through Pete, I guess, initially, I met the then producer of the show, Jerry Ryan. And they they got this show up. I wasn't involved because I had my job at Stage Entertainment. Pete and I were kind of living between London and Australia where he was putting the show on. And I met Jerry a few times and the show was groundbreaking and it smashed box office records and it very quickly made plans to go to the US. Describe the show for people who aren't familiar with it because it's something. Yeah, the show's based on the BBC documentary series, Walking with Dinosaurs, produced by Tim Haynes. And it was this crazy idea, not mine. I'd love to claim credit for it. But it, it was an idea to create an entertainment piece for arenas because typically arenas have one-nighters going through a pop concert and they struggle with programming. And this guy, Bruce McTaggart, had suggested, well, what if we took Walking with Dinosaurs and made it into an arena show that could play a whole week at a time? And it was the, you know, the idea that should never have succeeded. It was crazy. And he partnered with a gentleman named Sonny Tilders, 
creatively to come up with a concept for these dinosaurs. And Sonny at the time worked in film as a special effects artist. He came up with a form of animatronics with, you know, a group of other collaborators that had never been done in the world before and it really brought these dinosaurs to life. They're incredible. There were, you know, smaller ones that would have been our height like raptors and then there were ones that were towering above us and kind of almost hitting the roof of the arena. So together they developed this form of animatronics that really meant these creatures could walk around the arena and for anyone who'd ever seen an animatronic dinosaur at a theme park they would have been poking out from behind a bush somewhere and you know all the undercarriage hidden this was the first time someone had actually really created these creatures could move in a lifelike way around the arena and it was extraordinary because I think what the show delivered to people was this sense of oh this is what it would have been like to walk next to a dinosaur Yeah, so were there so many people who really believed they were seeing dinosaurs? Yeah, we had so many media come through who kind of really get scared by a dinosaur roaring in their ear because all the voices were puppeteered live. And it's been a feature of of the technology the company developed was that the voices, I guess we called them a voodoo rig, which we had puppeteers with their hands in these very sophisticated gloves that would send a signal to the creature on the floor and be able to operate. It's a combination. So the bigger ones had a driver in the undercarriage that you couldn't see, but all the muscular movement of like facial expressions or kind of stretching a neck and the voices were created live. So that I think gave the audience a sense of something magical that they would never have been able to put their finger on. But I think to kind of experience what essentially is puppetry done in a live way is such an incredible opportunity for the audience to build a connection that people were just blown away by it. I mean, it became this absolute juggernaut of a show. It created a lot of interest in the company around the world. And, but behind the scenes, it was a disaster. I mean, it's no secret. It was falling apart. It didn't have a management structure in place. It used to pain me watching from the sideline because I just thought, oh, I'd just love to get in there and kind of clean that up, of course. And but I was, you know, I was in London. I was happy. I, my first son, Ned, was doing just fine at six months of age, tripping around Europe with me. And I got this call from Jerry saying, hey, I've heard you might want to move back to Australia. I'm going to be in Copenhagen next week. Would you like to meet up and talk? So I flew to Copenhagen with Ned. (laughs) With Ned, your traveling buddy. Yeah. He was in the pusher. I was, you know, rocking him uh, when we met for a coffee. And Jerry said, would you be interested in moving back to Australia and taking over walking with dinosaurs? And I said to him, I really, I would like to raise my son at home. And actually really frustrating watching the help this show clearly needs behind the scenes. But really, I don't want to just come back to Australia and run one show around the world. It's not interesting enough for me and it doesn't really capitalise on this this network I've set up now around the world. And at that time, Australian companies really were just importing Broadway and West End shows to Australia. They'd licence them and faithfully replicate them. And I said to him what I would be more interested in doing is coming back to Australia and setting up a company where we're flipping that model, where we generate the content and then we get to license it out around the world to Broadway, to the West End and beyond, hopefully. 
And I said to him, but what is your interest in this? I mean, his background was not in theatre. He'd just been approached and asked to invest in this thing and it ended up controlling the rights. He makes, I think you call them RVs, right? He had Jayco caravans. And he just said, I'm really attracted to the passion and the commitment of the young people and the creativity. And I love the idea. I don't know anything about it, but I just love the idea of creating a company that builds a future for all of these young people. It's not going to change my life, but I really like the idea of being able to change the lives of passionate, creative young people. Well, I just thought he can't be serious. I mean, can you really believe this man? Because if he's for real, what kind of a gift is this? So I tore myself inside out about moving back to Australia because I just wasn't sure if he was legit. But we started this partnership and 16 odd years later, he's been so true to his word in the most unwavering way all that time. And we've had an incredible partnership. And so I came home. And the other thing that really turned it for me, actually, is I said to him, you know, I actually want to have another baby. So what do you think about that? And he just said, well, I'm sure we'll work that out. And I thought, wow, okay. He's not intimidated by a woman sitting here talking to him about setting up a company with a baby and a pusher and talking about another one. And I really took that as the measure of the man, actually. He had children and then very shortly after had grandchildren. So he's a real family man and I'm a real family person. And we together have really imbued that in the company from day one. We don't really ask people to try and pretend that they don't have children. You know, really something I've really pioneered quite deliberately in the company, partly because it suited me to not have to hide my children, (laughs) partly because I really wanted to send that signal to other women. I get that, though. I mean, my first few years on Wall Street after I had kids, I did not have the pictures all over my desk and, you know, because I there's sort of this double standard that sort of, you know, women who have pictures of their kids aren't fully involved and men who keep pictures of their kids around their office are such good dads. Yeah. It's so interesting, good for you isn't for it? creating that environment that you celebrate. Yeah. Pete will often say to me, oh, just stop talking about our kids in meetings. Nobody cares. They're <laughs> just not as interesting as you think they are. And I say, Pete, I'm not doing it because I think our kids are interesting. I'm doing it because I'm trying to normalize parenting at work. And that's why. And I would go around the office in the early years saying to the men in our company, Could you please make sure that sometimes you're the first to leave? Could you please make sure that sometimes you leave at five o'clock to go and pick your kids up or go home and cook dinner? It would be really, really helpful for all of the women in the company. And they kind of look at me and go, "Uh, okay, um, sure. Thinking, what's she talking about? Uh, I I totally get it, though. That's so smart. important. Yeah, it's really important. So, you know, it's not the friendliest industry in terms of hours for families and more so with us, with the dreadful time zones we're up against all the time and I you know I really do like to think that people can go and go to their kids school concert or work from home if they've got a sick child I just wanted that to be kind of equally shared amongst everybody so that was really the start of our company and the start of Jerry and I's enduring partnership and you know he's someone that plays the long game and it's been a great lesson to me because Theatre is an unbelievably risky business. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. We always joke and say the odds are worse than going and spinning a roulette wheel in Las Vegas for the weekend. I mean, you know, when you win, you win big. Right. But you've done it now a few times, spun that roulette wheel, and it's worked. 
So there must be something to it besides just luck, obviously, right? You have to be really good at it. Yeah. I mean, look, I think in the early years we were really finding our feet. And I would say we recruited really good people, always had good staff. And um, I always say to our management, when you're hiring, try to hire as if you're managing yourself out of your job. Like I really believe in just getting the best people and not fearing someone being too senior, too experienced, too skilled. So we've always had good people, but there's a difference between that and the kind of, I guess, the learning and process you set up as a company of good people over many years. So, I mean, we've made terrible mistakes. We've done some things really well. We've done some things badly. We've had some shows fail spectacularly and we've had others do brilliantly and others go somewhere in between. But for me, Jerry was the greatest supporter of playing the long game. He always said, I don't invest in businesses. I invest in people and I am back in Carmen. And I mean, I just look back now and I think, wow, not only has that been the greatest gift for me, of course, but he's going to have the last laugh because the success of Moulin Rouge now as an international franchise is is undisputable and it will return a lot of money. But you really, we had to go through a kind of, I guess, 10-year period of highs and lows for that to eventuate. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From the terrifying power of tornadoes to sizzling summer temperatures, AccuWeather Daily brings you the top trending weather-related story of the day, every day of the week. You can learn a lot in just a few minutes. Stories that will impact you, such as how a particular hurricane may affect your area, or will that impending snow event bring more than just a winter wonderland? Occasionally, there are weather-related stories from the lighter side, like how a recent storm trapped tourists inside Agatha Christie's house, a setup perfect for a plot of one of her novels. And if there's a spectacular meteor shower or eclipse coming your way, we'll let you know if the sky in your area will be clear to check out the celestial display. You see, AccuWeather Daily is more than just weather. It's AccuWeather. Listen and subscribe to AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So I know you've had some highs and lows. And um, Moulin Rouge, obviously, is the high that you can get. I know King Kong, which was a marvel of technological, I guess, anatomics again. Or is is yeah. that the right word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not very well reviewed. Brutal. 
Yeah. Do you read the reviews? Do you care? What does that feel like? I do read the reviews. I really need to read the reviews. It's part of my job to read the reviews. I work with lots of people, lots of creatives who don't and lots who do. But the particular practice on Broadway is that you set an opening night, the media sometimes will come in in the shows in the lead up, the, you know, just a few shows before the opening night performance. But definitely by the time of the opening night performance, they've all been through and they've all written their reviews and banked them. They just haven't released them. And then once the show happens, the embargo is lifted and the reviews can be posted. So on Broadway, what happens is you do the performance, you head to the opening night party, and then those reviews hit. And they're either good or bad or somewhere in the middle. And we have what we call a war room set up at the party with all media and publicists and media planners. And we sit there waiting for the reviews to come in. And we kind of pull quotes from them and redo artwork. And it's a big night of work for us. Well, of course, King Kong got that famous review from the New York Times, which actually I wouldn't even describe as a review. And I've had many conversations with the editor of that particular piece since and just said that wasn't a review. You can't print what's a conversation between two reviewers and call that a review. So it was brutal. I mean, it was so brutal. I had to reach very deep that night to just kind of, I guess, calmly lead through that crisis. And I saw my husband at the party who was a set designer and I could tell he hadn't read the reviews and I just thought, I, I can't even pretend. So I just had to kind of walk away from him. They were so bad and so vicious. The funny thing was, I don't think the show deserved great reviews. I really don't. And I'm very realistic about that. And I, I don't mind when reviews have a through line and you think, oh, I see, that's what didn't speak to people or that's what we could have done better. I don't mind a kind of constructive and intelligent analysis of a work, that's fine. I, I kind of welcome it. I, I get a lot out of reviews from that point of view, where there are consistent themes. But before the show even opened on Broadway, you, all of the agents would say to me, well, you know you're going to get terrible reviews. You're just, this show's never going to do well on Broadway. The reviewers won't want to think that this is Broadway. They won't want to think that Broadway is becoming a theme park. And it was something we struggled with as a company because people somehow thought we were this very big kind of kind of cynical company that was like a TV studio or something. And we would really have to explain we're not. We're a very small company. We're really full of sort of artisans and creators. And I still feel immensely proud of many parts of King Kong. I'm immensely proud of the puppetry and the animatronics that were very beautiful and nothing themed like at all. It had such humanity to it. But I don't think the show was good enough. I really don't. I don't think Broadway was ready for a show like that. Plus, I don't think the show was good enough. It's interesting you would say that. This is something you know you worked really hard on for years, and it takes a certain amount of intellectual, I guess, perspective. It's gutting. I mean, it's just so gutting, particularly for the creative team who have invested so many years of work. And I think we're a very high caliber team very high caliber, really people at the top of their game. But this is the thing about theatre. You can put the best team in the world together on paper, but what you don't know is whether alchemy is going to just kind of take the moment. And unfortunately with King Kong, it just didn't. Look, it was a very hard piece to make work on stage. It was a very ambitious piece. I still feel very proud that we got that show to Broadway. That was a monumental undertaking. 
I'm very proud of many aspects, which, as I said, were, were innovative and groundbreaking. The show, despite those reviews, actually lasted nearly a year on Broadway, which I think was a feat in itself. But it was a very schizophrenic moment for me when Moulin Rouge then went on to get one of the best reviews ever from the New York Times, right up against what was, I would describe, one of the worst reviews ever given by the New York Times. How far and apart were those two things? A matter of months. Wow. Okay. I didn't think about that. Yeah. We opened in Boston in July of 2018, and King Kong opened in November. So then Moulin Rouge transferred to Broadway the following year, of course, and we got another great review from the New York Times from that paper twice. And the day of the first preview of Moulin Rouge on Broadway was the day I had to go and see the King Kong company and tell them that the show would be closing. And I suppose you know, Moulin Rouge buffered the experience for me somewhat because in a way it vindicated what I know to be true. It's really hard producing theatre, let alone ambitious theatre, and you can cast a fantastic creative team and sometimes it comes together and sometimes it just doesn't. And it's tough. It's really, really tough. It's, But I guess it's sort of part of you sign up for it when you do a show like that and put it out for all the world to see. It was, you know, really for me, the opening night of Moulin Rouge wasn't just a thrill because of the success of Moulin Rouge, which, you know, had been a wonderful process. It was the kind of full stop on a 10-year chapter of highs and lows, and I knew there is no way we would have produced that version of Moulin Rouge as well as we did without all of the experience and the learnings that came before it. And that's the thing about failure. And I, I try to be really honest about failure when I talk to people because I just know that if you take that and you take it together as a team and you learn from it and you try to put your ego aside, those learnings are the things that inform success. And so I don't enjoy the failures, but I definitely use them. I mean, I'm, I'm often asked, do reviews matter? And I think the answer is sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. There are plenty of shows that have defied bad reviews. Wicked quite famously didn't get the best reviews when it opened on Broadway, but it didn't matter because the show captured the imagination of the right audience at the right time. I think the reviews for King Kong closed it. I really do. And I think what they can also really do is help build on buzz and just help build on success. And, and that's what happened for us with Moulin Rouge as well, getting that incredible review from the New York Times when we opened in Boston. It did catapult us to Broadway, whereas King Kong had a capitalization of famously $35 million and it's just gone. And that, that happens to many shows. It's really high stakes. It's interesting to me that at the very same time you would have such a high and a low, but so tell me about where the sort of seed of Moulin Rouge first happened and then how, what was the process to get it all the way to the finish line? Yeah. So I had heard back in 2009 that Baz Luhrmann and Catherine Martin were interested for the first time after being approached for many years of licensing the rights for both Moulin Rouge and Strictly Ballroom. I had written to Baz years earlier, actually, as 
probably everybody else in the industry had too, expressing interest in these rights. And it'd been a long time after those films had opened that they really were themselves ready to see them realised on the stage. So I got asked if we would like to put in a bid, I guess, which we did. And I wrote the letter of my life to just say, I'm really looking forward to meeting and talking about this opportunity. It was a lot of money that they wanted up front. It was an unprecedented amount of money, I would say, for rights. And Jerry asked me what I thought about the numbers involved. And I said, well, I can tell you, in failure, this will be one of the worst decisions we've ever made. And in success, it'll be one of the best decisions we've ever made. So that's the roll of the dice. We had lunch with Baz and Catherine uh, in Sydney because we both both from Sydney. And we had this gorgeous lunch, which I remember very well in 2009. And we talked for a long time about who we were and the things that mattered to each of us. And what we really connected on very quickly was that we all had a great kind of love of parenting and Baz and Catherine had kids, young kids the same age as mine at the time. And they really loved Jerry's kind of vision just generally in business and his success story. And I guess more than anything, we connected on the idea of being two Australian-based companies who were very proud of our Australian heritage and had a deep belief in the Australian talent pool but also had a deep desire to be part of a world stage and a belief that Australian talent could stand shoulder to shoulder on a world stage. So we left that lunch and I got this lovely call from Baz's agent saying actually they're calling off the tender. They just want to work with you and Jerry. They've decided out of the gate they're not going to meet anybody else. And that was a tremendous moment for us. Uh, It was a very proud moment, but it felt very natural and we'd had the same sort of feeling about them. So we did a really fast deal. I mean, we did our part of the deal in three months. I remember from September to December 23 of 2009, we went and signed this deal memo together at their house. And I thought Moulin Rouge would happen quickly. Strictly Borum happened pretty quickly. Baz directed that. But then we set about to put together the rest of the rights for Moulin Rouge. It's a very unusual property from an intellectual property point of view. There are four what we call underlying rights holders, so four parties who control the underlying property, and that can be a book, it could be a film, it could be a song, and normally it's just a film studio. But in this case, Baz Luhrmann and his co-writer, Craig Pierce controlled part of the rights in the story, the characters, the idea of the story itself. Then at the time, Fox Studios, who now are Disney, they can had certain rights, and then The Moulin Rouge in Paris, the original cabaret that this was based on, controlled the trademark in the name Moulin Rouge and I guess the universe of Moulin Rouge, those famous red windmill and characters that visited there. And that was a surprise for us because that took from 2009 until June 2016 to negotiate those rights, which was just extraordinary. And those four agreements had to be executed simultaneously. Because you couldn't do any of them without all of them. That's right. That's right. Okay, so we're not even yet at the music. That's right, Karen. So we're not yet at the music. And it's interesting in the creative process because I just didn't dare let the team get too far into that process without knowing that we had the rights to at least put Moulin Rouge on the stage. So it was 2009. We'd already identified the director, Alex Timbers, who both Baz and I were both huge fans of. So that was an easy choice. 
and John Logan came on as the book writer and then we put the music team together and talked about really the conceit of the music. Were we going to mirror the film? Were we going to introduce original music? And we decided to just give the conceit of the film a go, but we all agreed it was a great opportunity to balance, I guess, the iconic songs of the film, but also introduce new catalogue in the intervening years. It's been 20 years since the film came out in the end. And so one of the taglines we use is Moulin Rouge, the music of Moulin Rouge, 120 years in the making from Offenbach to Lady Gaga. And that is the span of the catalogue we use. So in the end, we have 75 songs uh, that represents the work of 160 composers. So we had to get approval for each composer and they're represented by 30 publishers who also have to agree the deal. So, I mean, I cannot think of another musical property that has that level of rights complexity. I mean, the film certainly didn't have that much music. That, for me, was one of the most interesting parts of the journey, getting the rights, putting those deals together, being brave enough to say no when someone wanted a deal. We, we, we have a Most Favoured Nations approach to the music deals. Everybody gets the same. And I really had to hold hands with the creative team at the outset and say, if we make one variation, we're screwed. Because the only answer we can give is that there are no side deals. Nobody gets a better deal or we're never going to get these deals done. So we have to really be prepared to walk away from songs we love. Did you have to walk away? Yeah. There was one publisher actually who controlled about 25% of the songs we wanted to use, including many of the iconic songs we wanted to use at the time. And we just weren't getting a deal done. And they wanted something which was really very unusual in the deal. And I said to them, we can't because then we would have to do that for everybody and the show doesn't make sense. And they dug in and I sent a very polite letter one weekend and just said, look, we're not going to make a deal. I can see it. So no hard feelings. I just think it's better for where we are in the process that we back away nicely now because if I let the team get too further into the development process, it's going to be really hard to take those songs out and I don't feel confident that we're going to reach a deal. And I said, by the way, one of the composers who I'm not going to name is a very close friend of Baz's very close family friend, actually, would you just do me the courtesy of letting Baz be the person to tell him that his song's not going to be in the show? Um, uh, so if you just give me the weekend. Well, I've, honestly, things moved so quickly. They all came back saying, no, 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 it's okay. We'll do the deal that everybody else is doing. Ah, oh, that's great. So those, those songs ended up in the show, thank God, because I was thinking, oh, man, if I really hope this one doesn't backfire. But that took another few years again. So Cameron McIntosh, I often quote him. He famously said, it's 10 years from the page to the stage. And for Moulin Rouge, that was the truth of it. It was a 10-year journey to get that show from our lunch in Sydney to our out-of-town pre-Broadway engagement in Boston and then, oh no, and then again to Broadway. It was 10 years to Broadway. Yeah. So it's an extraordinary show. I just saw it. And I mean, you and I had talked about this a little bit before we started here, but just you are immediately transformed into, okay, I'm in this nightclub now from the very beginning when you walk in. And then, I mean, there's so much to see. There's so much going on. But then the music, the modern music is sort of unexpected and yet totally works. And it's so interesting to see, like, it all come together 
and then a crowd really enjoy it and really respond to it. What does that feel like to you when you see a crowd watching the show? Oh, it's such a thrill. And in the beginning, it's such a relief. And the very first preview we had in Boston, I just knew we were going to be okay. I mean, I never really let myself believe that because I know there's still so much work to do and I don't like to ever take anything for granted. But I could just feel it. I thought this feels right. It feels like it works and it feels like the audience love it. And what I've now learned is a feeling where I can't wait to share it with people. I just couldn't wait. And I've learned now within myself, that's a feeling I must listen to. I have to know that in the process to know when I'm really excited to share the material with people as we're developing it. So it was the greatest cooperation amongst everybody working on the show. And we talk a lot about belonging and welcoming everybody, everybody feeling welcome. And an important goal we set ourselves at the outset was to feel like you were in the club and to feel like there wasn't that barrier between the stage and the audience. And that ethos extended backstage and into every part of the production, marketing, press, general management, the crew, the band, the box office staff. Everybody had to be part of the club. Everybody had to feel like they belonged. And it really galvanised us and everybody was making the same show. And I've worked on other productions where you realise everybody's not necessarily making the same show. From Moulin Rouge, everybody was making the same show. And I think it's got a level of cohesion about it as a result, that even if you can't quite put your finger on it, you feel that as an audience member. It shows. So Moulin Rouge is nominated for 14 Tony Awards and ends up winning 10. But tell us about how you're feeling. You're in the audience. I would imagine the best musical comes up very near the end, I can't quite remember, of the Tonys. And so you've been there all night. You're seeing just Moulin Rouge again and again and again winning. Are you nervous or do you feel like, you know what, we got this? I'm not someone that ever lets myself think we've got this. But let's talk about the timing of those Tony Awards. So in March of 2002, 20, as you mentioned at the beginning, we were nine months into our run when Broadway shut down. Moulin Rouge had been discussed as a Tony favourite. Again, I used to block my ears and not listen to that. But the Tony Awards were supposed to take place in June of 2020. Broadway didn't reopen again for 18 months. So Broadway reopened in September of 2021. And all that time of the shutdown, we had uncertainty about when Broadway would reopen, when the Tony Awards would be, what kind of ceremony it would be, would it crash two years worth of shows together, just a handful of shows, if it suddenly got announced, would we be ready? Meanwhile, I'd been back in Australia trying to get Moulin Rouge on the stage here, suffering endless border closures and lockdowns, and eventually we had to shut the show for three months that gave me the opportunity actually to come over for the Tony Awards. But that weekend, on the Friday night of that weekend, Broadway reopened and Moulin Rouge reopened after an 18-month hiatus. So that was Friday night. And, yes, my eyes are welling up again. I know, I and see them. That's so the exciting. Tony Awards, <laughs> the Tony Awards were on the Sunday night. When I flew to America, I was one of five people on the plane. Qantas weren't flying at the time. There were 15 crew, five people on the plane. I had to get special permission to leave Australia. New York was still not in a great place. 
I had always imagined wearing something fabulous to the Tonys, but it just felt a bit off. I just wore a black suit. It was quite somber. I mean, people were excited to be back together and celebrating the shows. But, you know, when the Best Musical was announced, oh, it was such a relief. I mean, I can't tell you. Well, first of all, awards shows I've discovered are so much more fun when you're winning <laughs> all, <laughs> all night, much more interesting. And it's a lot of pressure because Best Musical really does mean a lot on Broadway. It means a lot at the box office. It means a lot to the community. It has a very commercial impact as as well as, you know, it being a lovely thing to win. So it was a deep relief. But I had thought, well, what am I going to say? I can't kind of stand up there and be all self-congratulating and be high-fiving the air. I thought it was very sombre and I felt there'd been so much loss and there were so many shows who weren't as lucky as Moulin Rouge and there were so many shows who should have been able to reopen but just economically couldn't. And there'd been so many deaths and deaths in the community and people that had lost money and people that had lost their livelihoods and people that had left the industry. And so I talked briefly about the show and how proud we were of it, but I really felt in that moment that every show in the last season had to be thought of as best musical. You said that in your speech, which was very gracious, and and I think the crowd really sort of felt that as well. Yeah, it was just an extraordinary time. I mean, that first show back on the Friday night, I was so jet lagged. My plane was so delayed and I, I got there and I didn't think we'd get through the show because every time a performer walked on stage, the audience would cheer so loudly and for so long and there'd be a standing ovation every time a performer entered the stage. I mean, <laughs> it just almost lifted the lid off the venue and it was truly one of the most memorable nights I'll ever have. It was just such a thrill and it was just electric. I mean, it was absolutely electric. And then to have the Tony Awards on the Sunday, I mean, wow, it was really, of course, a weekend I will never forget. And what do you do with your Tony Award? Where does it sit? Oh, I've got, luckily, I've got a copy, so I've got two. I've got one at the office and, and one at home. And it's, it's nice. It's very heavy, <laughs> just sort of got some weight about it. And we, we love it. I, I consider that the award of, of everybody who's worked on the show. It, it took everybody. It just took everybody. I mean, that must be just a, an amazing feeling. So you've done it all. You've done the lows. You've done the highs many times. Do you have any advice for young people who think, wow, this creating a show is something that they dream of doing? Do you have any advice for them? I guess my advice, I often get asked by people if I'll have a coffee with them and talk to them about getting into the industry. I try and be generous about that. That gets harder, of course, over time. But I always say just, first of all, travel. Make sure you do some traveling. You have to understand the ideas and different societies and you have to understand different cultures because theatre is about ideas and you have to understand there's a world out there that's bigger than you. So I, it's one of the first questions I ask people when I'm interviewing, oh, do you travel? It's one of the most important questions I ask, particularly in our company because we work all around the world. And networks, you just, I'm sure you're the same. You can't go past networks. You just can't go past having that trusted group of people who you can call and ask their opinion and have a whinge. And the last bit of advice I often give women is just to not pretend. Just really, I think people really like authenticity and let's not make each other feel like, 
oh, look, she's got her hair and makeup done and standing on a red carpet with the children looking gorgeous. I'm always laughing about what's going on behind that camera. (laughs) There's usually someone crying. I'm definitely screaming at somebody just beforehand. And I say, like most people, we're barely getting by. We're barely getting by with the juggle of travel and work and raising kids and having complicated teenagers and ailing parents and mortgages, you know, all those things that, that most people are dealing with in their life. And I think the sooner you become realistic about that and just go, it's, it's okay actually. Most people feel like imposters and most people feel like they're barely getting through their days. I think when you make peace with that, you make better decisions. Well said. I hear you. I was exhausted for 12 years straight until my kids got a little bit older. It's all encompassing to try to do it all and it never all quite works at the same time, but you keep going. I like that about you. I respond to so many things I've heard you say, you know, you're you're wired a certain way and I'm wired a certain way. I don't take time off. And when I do, I really don't know what to do with myself. I'm terrible at it. And when people say things to me like, oh, what do you do for me time? I just go, oh my God, what are you talking about? <laughs> I just, I work because I really like my work. That's my me time. Yeah. I did hear one funny thing that you said about homeschooling and children, and it was, uh, it doesn't take a village, it takes a winery. And I thought that's an excellent (laughs) quote. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with the lightning round. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so this is just would you rather, and the only thing is you just gotta just answer the first thing that pops into your head. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Okay. Cold read or dress rehearsal? Dress rehearsal. Schitt's Creek or How I Met Your Mother? Schitt's Creek. No question. No question. All right. You're a giant Schitt's Creek fan. I love Moira. (laughs) Um, Tea or coffee? Coffee. Oh, tea? (laughs) Coffee. Definitely coffee. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) Sydney, Australia or New York City? Sydney, Australia. Okay. Uh, Beach or mountains? Beach. Okay. The Sparkling Diamond or El Tango de Roxanne? <gasps> Both songs from Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Mm, Roxanne. Okay. Only wear black for the rest of your life or hot pink for the rest of your life? I only wear black. And weirdly, <laughs> I'm wearing a pink shirt today for you. <laughs> Normally, I wear well, thank black. Thank you. I'm wearing a blue shirt for you. In black. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Would you rather drive or be driven? Drive. 
Okay. And would you rather laugh uncontrollably or be moved? Oof. I'd say be moved. If I'm thinking about making a show, I would absolutely say I want to move people more than I want to make people laugh. No question. But in life, oh my God, I love laughing. And I have a really funny husband and I have really funny kids. And I just think I probably would have divorced my husband by now if he wasn't as funny as he was because he diffuses a lot of situations with humor. Yeah, funny is really, it's really good. Okay, fiction or nonfiction? Mm, fiction. You're reading anything good right now? I just started a book by an Australian author who I'm doing some work with, actually. His name's Trent Dalton, and the book's called Lola in the Mirror. And the book he wrote before that is called Boy Swallows Universe. And he is just a thrilling discovery for me. There's just such humanity in his work that I just can't get enough of his writing. Okay, good. I haven't heard of him. Trent Dalton, you said. Yeah, yeah. You will. His series, his book's about to come out on Netflix. Um, Boy Swallows Universe is about to be a seven-part series on Netflix. Wow. So good. Okay, yeah. that's exciting. Okay, one last one. What is the best investment you've ever made and what is the worst investment? And investment can be a very, it's very broad definition. Yeah, I, I think investing in myself with study, I'm just going to put up there as probably one of the best investments I've made. It's, it's a lot to commit to with time and effort. And when you're a young person and you want everything right away, oh my God, like a three-year degree and two years master's feels like forever. But I think that was really one of the best investments I made in myself. Worst investment? What was the worst investment I ever made? See, I can't even say King Kong because although we lost the money, I still got so much out of it and I was very proud. Probably time-consuming people that probably I really didn't need in my life. That's a lot of time. Okay, that's a very good and unique, interesting answer. I, as an investment person, can come up with, I mean, I could go on and on and on for the worst investments I ever made, but that is an excellent answer. Carmen, thank you so much for spending the time with us. I loved hearing about your career and the highs and the lows and the process and the whole thing. Thank you so much. Oh, Karen, it's been so nice to talk to you. And I've really, really enjoyed getting to know you and your, you know, various podcasts and books and talks. I mean, you're just a wonder and I, I really feel a kindred spirit. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward. <laughs>